back to Genesis 12. Please take out your Bibles and turn there. This morning we're looking at 12.10 through 13.4. You can find it on page 9 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 3.28 says that we are justified by faith. Galatians 3.11 says that the righteous shall live by faith. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So we're saved through faith, we live by faith, we are justified by faith, and we cannot please God without faith. That seems to make faith pretty important, which seems that it's pretty important that we then understand what faith actually is and does. And that's what we started looking at two weeks ago. In studying Abraham, the father of those who have faith, the father of all who believe, we are studying faith itself. Faith, that saving grace, that gift of God by which we receive and rest on him alone for salvation. I'm going to keep giving you Luther's definition. It's so good. He says, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. So faith is belief. It is a trusting belief. And so we saw last time that that's the first thing that faith does. This is fundamental to faith. Faith Trust. It trusts God. It takes God at his word. It believes that God will do what he says. But it doesn't stop there. It trusts and then it acts accordingly. So secondly, we saw that faith obeys. God calls Abram. God commands Abram and Abram obeys. It is the nature of faith to obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Faith trusts and obeys God, but don't forget the end of Luther's definition. Such faith also then makes you happy and joyful. This is not a grumpy, begrudging obedience, but a willing and joyful obedience because it understands that God is good and that anything God says, anything he commands is good. And since God is always seeking the good of his people, faith responds by worshiping God. Trusting him leads to treasuring him. Obeying him leads to delighting in him. Faith worships God. But we need to keep going because the story of Abraham doesn't end in 12.9. Things seem to take a bit of a turn in verse 10. Things seem to be moving along swimmingly. God's grace has burst onto the scene out of nowhere. He has called and commissioned the pagan Abram. He has saved him and sent him. And Abram responds perfectly. He trusts. He obeys. He worships. But that's only six verses of Abram's story. That's only six verses of his faith response to God's grace. What happens when things get difficult? What happens when faith encounters obstacles? What does faith do in the face of fear? Plus, if we leave our definition at faith, trusts, obeys, and worships, what happens when you struggle to do those things? What do you do when you haven't trusted, when you have disobeyed, and have been apathetic and ungrateful? Does that mean that you don't have faith? Well, I guess it's possible, maybe. But does that always mean you don't have faith? Well, no, definitely not. We've got to go deeper. Which is why I'm so thankful for God's word and stories like this. One of the things I find most compelling and convincing about God's word is its brutal honesty. There's nothing sentimental about it, nothing romantic, nothing idealistic. It gives us reality, warts and all. It gives us its heroes, warts and all. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It gives us a realistic picture of what faith in a fallen world looks like. And so if the title of the last sermon was Faith's Response to Grace, this week we're going to focus more on faith's imperfect response to grace, because we're going to see Abram's faith waver and struggle. Maybe this week your faith has wavered and struggled. Maybe you have had to fight to trust, obey, and worship. Maybe you have failed to do those things. 
What now? Please pick a good day to come. Because, three points, we are going to see that faith falters, but then amazingly, we're going to see that faith, uh, that God preserves and restores that faith. And then, repeat point, specifically because of the faltering faith that God restores, we're going to see again that faith worships. And then hopefully, we ourselves will worship the God who holds us and holds our faith fast. Let's read and be challenged and then encouraged. Genesis 12, verse 10, reading through chapter 13, verse 4. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and sent them away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. If you would, bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this word is living and active. We thank you that you speak through it and that you work through it and that you save lives through it and that you change lives through it. Father, encourage us, edify us, challenge us, rebuke us. Father, make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Make us more in love with your son, Jesus Christ, as a result of what we learn here today. Help us, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now there was famine in the land. What a way to start a story, especially in light of what has come before this. Grand promises of great things. Let's remember and review them quickly. We're going to have to keep doing this. You have to keep this in mind. You have to remember the bigger picture. This is about so much more than just Abram. In the beginning, the first thing we are told about our God after the fact that he exists, remember the existence of God is never argued for in the Bible. It's just assumed. The Bible knows that everyone knows that God exists, even though many then suppress that truth and exchange it for a lie. But after the affirmation and assumption of the existence of God, the first thing we learn about God is that he speaks. He creates everything, and he creates everything by speaking. God wills the world into existence with his words. In a very real sense, the world is made of words. And as God, as the God who speaks, God is also the God who makes promises. That's what 12, 1 through 3 were about. We're summarizing the promises under three headings, blessing, seed, Land, I will give you a son, a seed, and make you into a great nation. But wait a second, 1130, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Obstacle. 
Go from your land to the land that I will show you. So Abram went. He came to the land of Canaan. 12.6, the Canaanites were in the land. Obstacle. 12.10, there was famine in the land. Another obstacle. It seems kind of strange. God has made grand promises concerning this supposed grand land, but it seems that there are problems with the promise. The land is filled with people and empty of food. And as we looked at last time, this sure seems to be how God loves to work. He loves to preface his great works with great difficulties. He's made the great promises, but since we know that he is absolutely sovereign over all things, since we know that there is no such thing as chance, there are no accidents, as the sovereign creator, sustainer, and director of everything, he also ordains the great difficulties that seem to get in the way of the great promises. And we have one here. No food is a pretty significant obstacle. No food equals death. Abram obviously cannot become a great nation if he dies of starvation. And so Abram heads south. He leaves the land and he goes to Egypt. And many think that Abram falters, that his faith falters right away, right here, even in his choice to go down to Egypt. I'm not so sure. Later on, starting in Exodus, Egypt will become symbolic of the enemy. Returning to Egypt will become synonymous with rejecting God. But I don't think that's the case yet. I don't think Abram is necessarily doing anything wrong just by going to Egypt. In fact, later on, we know that God is going to specifically send Joseph to Egypt ahead of his family. Joseph says to his terrible kidnapping and slave-selling brothers in chapter 45, verse 8, It was not you who sent me here, but God. And so then in the very next chapter, 46 verse 3, God tells Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Egypt's not yet the bad guy. It will be the bad guy, but not yet. God specifically sends his people to Egypt to preserve them and make them into a great nation. So we cannot necessarily say that Abram is wrong here to go down to Egypt. But he does start to go wrong in verse 11. Look there. I love this verse. When he was about to enter Egypt... He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Stop there. This is not the point of the text, but I think it's beautiful that the text records the beauty of Sarai. I'm so tempted to go on a long tangent here, but we just don't have time for it. But this is the first time that Abram speaks. And the first words out of his mouth are about the beauty of his wife. Husbands. Take some advice from Abram here. Do this thing that Abram does, not the next thing that Abram does. This kind of sounds like Adam, doesn't it? The first word, it's words out of Adam's mouth. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He, he's stunned. He's excited. This one is like me, but she is beautifully not like me. She is fit for me. She completes me. And he is so overjoyed that he bursts into song. My brother-in-law is coming here to preach in April. My brother-in-law hates, he hates musicals. I love musicals. I think that this here is biblical justification for my love of musical. It's musicals. Adam sees his wife and he sings. Beauty is good. The Bible is pro-beauty. And, and don't read into what I'm saying, like how the culture has perverted your understanding of beauty. Beauty. I'm not talking about the airbrushed front of magazines beauty. I'm not talking about pornographic beauty. But God made man, male and female, he made them. And those are different, beautifully different. And one of the ways they are beautifully different is that he made women beautiful in a way that he did not make men. Just look at my wife and look at me. There's a difference. And that's 
good. We should celebrate and affirm that. The Bible is beautifully binary, and in a culture that absolutely hates that, we need to be brave enough to affirm the goodness of that. My daughters need to hear from me every day that I think they're beautiful, and I do, and so I tell them, and it is good that they're beautiful, not so that they may be glorified, not so that they may find their identity or their hope in that, but so that God may be glorified and they may find their identity and their hope in him and he who made them and beautifully made them girls and then gave them to me. That's a big responsibility in our culture that hates difference, that doesn't seem to know the difference between a man and a woman. I have to raise four girls in that environment. So I'm thinking a lot about gender stuff right now, sex stuff, because we know that those are the same thing. We do not divorce gender from biology as our world does. Biology is good. We love biology. Our biology determines who we are. So we'll be sure, for sure, be talking some more of this about this sometime in the future. Just don't have time right now. But again, don't gloss over the fact that the Bible affirms her beauty. 65-year-old Sarai, with their lifespans, she is in the prime of her life, and she is beautiful. But a beautiful woman can be a problem. And so, verse 12, look there. Abram continues, When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. 13. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me, because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Man, what do we do with that? What is Abram doing? We've seen him wonderfully trusting, obeying, and worshiping. What's this? Well, it's clear from my wording of the point, his faith falters, that I don't think this is good. There's just zero possibility to try to spin this in a positive light. It is not good. There's some question about how bad it is, but it's bad. Look again. It could be really bad. Do this, that it may go well with me, that my life may be spared for your sake. So it's possible that he's just completely hanging his wife out to dry. And if he is intentionally giving his wife to another man to save his own skin, well, then what he is doing is about as bad as it gets. Maybe, though, it's not quite that bad. It's not good, but it doesn't seem that Abram's plan is to give his wife to another man so that he can get rich. He's aware of the risk. And so I lean more towards this being some scheme on Abram's part to stall for time. If he's the husband, he's dead. If he's the brother, well, then there's, there's negotiation. There's possible uh, time, maybe giving them an opportunity, buying them some time to escape. I don't think he's just selling his wife to the highest bidder. He's not completely despicable. And again, I'm not even that concerned with... The deception. I don't think that's the point of the story. The, he is married to his sister. Not that, not a problem back then. She is his half sister. So he's telling a half truth. And some people get really upset about it. I'm not that uh, obsessed with it. I think the problem here is simply unbelief. Abram's faith falters in that he fails to trust God to do what he has said. God has said, I will give you a seed, a son. I will make you into a great nation. Well, again, that obviously requires that Abram be alive. So bound up in the promise of the seed is also the promise to protect Abram from whom the seed will come. God has even explicitly promised this in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
Well, that has to include someone who would try to kill Abram and take his wife. So God has given a clear word. He has made a promise that specifically applies to this situation, and Abram's faith falters. He fails in that moment to trust the promise of God. If it is the nature of faith to trust, obey, and worship, we also have to be honest and recognize that it will at times be the nature of the imperfect faith of sinners to struggle to do those things. I need to defend this point. The faith of Moses will falter. The faith of David will falter. The faith of Peter will falter. Peter's part of one of the most famous faith stories in the whole Bible. And what's it about? He trusts. He obeys. He walks on water. But then he takes his eyes off Jesus. He sees the wind and the waves. And what? He was afraid. Why did Abram do what he did? Because he was afraid. Fear of man is the great enemy of faith, which is ultimately just the fear of God. So it's either fear of man or fear of God. And so Peter, the rock on which the church will be built, sinks into the waves. And Jesus has to rescue him, saying, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Little faltering faith. Now, this isn't part of the definition of faith, but this is an honest and sober recognition that there is no such thing as perfect, never-faltering faith. This is a sober recognition of the pervasiveness and stubbornness of indwelling sin that wars against the new man. Your faith will falter at some point. Listen to Calvin. He says some very strong things about the certainty of faith. Some people struggle with how closely he ties together faith and assurance. We saw last time that he defined faith as a firm and certain knowledge. But keep reading. Calvin is far from the cold and calculating man that many accuse. Uh, he was a pastor. He understood human nature. He loved people and pastored them well. So he writes, We cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt, or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. Unbelief is, in all men, always mixed with faith. The godly heart feels within itself a division, because it is partly imbued with sweetness from its recognition of the divine goodness, partly grieves in bitterness from an awareness of its calamity, partly rests upon the promise of the gospel, partly trembles at the evidence of its own iniquity. Even Calvin understands that our little imperfect faith will sometimes struggle and falter. He understood the ongoing battle between trust and unbelief, fear and faith. Even the 1689, I read the definition of faith last time, but I never read point three of that chapter. It says this, This faith may exist in varying degrees so that it may be either weak or strong. Faith may often be attacked or weakened. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening to Abram. But listen to the last part of that definition. But it, faith, gains the victory. What? How? It often seems so weak. It frequently falters. Abram is failing to trust the promises of God at this point. How in the world could such little faltering faith find victory? Point number two. Only because God preserves and restores faith. Now notice that the structure of this point is different than the others. In homiletics, that's the, the science and art of preaching. You're taught that your points are supposed to be parallel and symmetrical. So in the course of these two sermons on faith, we have five parallel and same structured points. 
Faith trusts, faith obeys, faith worships, faith falters, and we'll close again with faith worships. This one is completely different, and that's on purpose. That's to set it apart. That's to draw your attention to it. That's to emphasize that this is the important point. It's not faith does something. We've been seeing what we do in faith. That is very important, but this is most important. This is foundational to all the rest. This parallels how we began, that the faith we have and exercise itself is a grace and gift of God. So here we see and rejoice, not that faith does something, but that God does something to and for faith. Our faith will always be imperfect. Faith will always falter at some point, but faith will never fail because God preserves and restores faith. Go back to the story. Look at uh, verses 14 and 15. Abram's faith may be faltering, but he was correct. They did recognize her beauty. What Abram probably didn't expect is that this recognition would make its way all the way to the top. She must have been beautiful. And so into verse 15, she was taken into Pharaoh's house. What does that mean? I listened to a guy this week who said definitively, without making any sort of case from the text, that Sarai was defiled by Pharaoh because of what Abram did. Was that true? I don't think so. From a parallel story coming up in Genesis 20, when Abram amazingly does the same stupid thing again, I think we can rightly conclude that God did not allow Pharaoh to sleep with Sarai. In Genesis 20, back in Canaan, Abraham gives up Sarai to Abimelech, but God comes to Abimelech in a dream. And I love this. God says, behold, you are a dead man. That's terrifying. But Abimelech protests. Why? Verse 4 says, now Abimelech had not approached her, meaning he hadn't yet slept with her. And God affirms the truth of Abimelech's claim. Verse 6, God says, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Abimelech, the pagan in the story, says that he didn't do anything wrong. It was Abraham's fault, and God agrees. And then he affirms that he himself has protected and preserved Sarah's honor. I think we can conclude from this account that God likely did the same thing in Genesis 12. If he rescued her and protected her the second time, why not the first? So while the text doesn't definitively say one way or the other, I think it most likely that Pharaoh does not touch Sarai. And the fact that God afflicts him and his house with great plagues also seems to imply that God is caring and protecting her. So when it says that she was taken into Pharaoh's house in verse 16, it wasn't just to sleep with her, it was to marry her. Think of it like the situation in the book of Esther, where she is brought into the harem of King Xerxes. There is a period of waiting and preparation. There's probably something like that going on here. She's brought into his home, maybe his harem, to become his wife, but God intervenes before anything happens. Abram's faith falters at great potential cost to his wife, but God's faithfulness prevails and protects and preserves her, the woman from whom the seed would come. And that's not all. Look at verse 16. This is crazy. Abram's faith has faltered. He has struggled to trust the promise of God, and it has ended up with his wife in the house of another man. 16. And for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. What? That's crazy. Why? Only grace. That's the only explanation 
for this verse. Not only did Abram not die, not only did God preserve his life, but God also gave him abundant wealth. That's grace. In spite of his failure of faith, God extends grace to Abram and blesses him. He gives him what he did not earn and he did not deserve. And God even gives him back the wife he had so foolishly given up as a result of his unbelief. Look at 17. Abram had been acting, he's been acting in the, as the actor in the story so far, and it hasn't been good. Well, now God is the actor, and he acts to protect and preserve. Look at what it says. We expect it to say, and God afflicted Abram with plagues. That's not what it says. It says he afflicts Pharaoh and his whole house with plagues. Somehow Pharaoh understands why, and so he calls Abram in verse 18. This is why there's no question that what Abram has done is wrong. Here we have the righteous, redeemed, called out man of God, called out by the wicked, godless pagan. The Yahweh-worshipping Abram is rebuked and corrected by the Ra-worshipping Pharaoh. Not good. Have you ever been called out and corrected by the world? It's humbling. That's what's happening to Abram, and he is sent away. Is it not clear that this story is not about the greatness of Abram? Is it not clear that this story is not about the bigness and strength of his faith? He falters, but what happens? God catches him. In spite of all his foolishness, God preserves him, and he protects and preserves his wife, and then he amazingly even restores him and blesses him in spite of his sin. This is what you need to know about faith. Yes, you need to know what faith does. Yes, you need to trust and obey, for there's no other way. But what you really need to know is what the God who gave you your faith does. That's how your faith will grow and be strengthened. Not by concentrating first on your faith. And again, I'm not in any way trying to minimize the importance of you actively trusting and obeying God. But I am trying to get the order right. I am trying to lay the foundation first. I want you to see the goodness of the God on whom your faith rests. He is the God of grace. Your life is a life of grace. He not only gives you your faith, but promises to preserve and restore your faith. He promises to guard you all the way until the end. He promises to complete the good work he has begun in you. And he promises to do that in spite of all of the times that your faith, like Abram's here, has and will falter. This is why I so love and cling to Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's exactly what's happening here. Be careful if you are somewhat bothered by how this story turns out. Abram did an awful thing. He really messed up. And the cost would have been ultimately to his poor wife. And instead, he gets his wife back along with great riches. Does that bother you? Be careful with that. Because that's your only hope. Your only hope is that God does that exact thing for you. Because you are Abram in the story. You are the failing, faltering faith. And so your only hope is for God to be gracious. For him not to deal with you according to your sin as he has done here. And how humbling is this? Even the great Abram has and can do nothing apart from God's grace. Neither can you. But at the same time, how hopeful is this? Isn't it good news to know that God's promises don't in any way depend upon you? This is wonderful news. Listen, your sin cannot hinder God's plan. It cannot even slightly slow down 
God's plan. He will accomplish his purposes. And if you are in Christ, those purposes are nothing but good. That's the promise, ultimately. God glorifying himself by abundantly blessing his wayward people with eternal goodness through the work of Christ. Steve sent me a wonderful book on Job, and I was struggling with Elihu this week and found this book very helpful. Lots of really bad things happen to Job. And then Job really struggles to trust God through those really bad things. His faith, too, at times, falters. But then Elihu comes in and just drops some truth on Job. Wonderfully comforting truth. That God is always doing something. And that something is always ultimately good, whether or not we can see it at the time. And here's the quote from the book that struck me. This guy writes, There is no hostile intent on the part of God. All has been done in kindness and love. All has been done in kindness and love. If you are in Christ, then that is true of you. Everything that God has and will do has been done in kindness and love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God preserves, that he restores, that he even rewards our little faltering faith? If you do, then your response is point number three, worship. Because that's what faith does. Look quickly at 13 verse 1. Abram returns back north. In verse 2, we see that he is now very rich, only grace. And in verse 3, he goes back to the place that he started. Why? Verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abram sins. God is gracious. Abram worships the God who is gracious. And this is the pattern of the Christian life. Grace Faith, failure, grace, worship, and on and on and on. But it's not just this never-ending repeating of the same thing. We can rest and rejoice in the sovereignty of our good God, which means that he is always doing something through our faltering failures. He is always teaching and correcting and growing, sometimes disciplining and rebuking, but always working towards his ultimate end, your ultimate good, making you like Christ. And so, in Christ... We never have to despair. Listen, there will be times when the promises of God seem doubtful. You may be in such a time right now, but let God's word do its work right now. Let it encourage you. This is how God always works. This is what he always does for his people. He always preserves and restores no matter what. If you are in Christ, he will do this in one way or another, and that is comfort and cause worship. And notice one last thing. Don't miss the pattern here. Down into Egypt, Pharaoh, plagues, back up out of Egypt with great wealth. Sound familiar? If you are doing a chronological Bible reading plan, then you've just read it. The Exodus. This is the first Exodus, and it's here to teach us something. It's here to point us forward to something that God is going to do again and again and again. God's providence is purposeful. God allows Abram to go down into Egypt, and then God brings him out of Egypt. At the end of Genesis, God is going to allow his people to go down into Egypt, and then the book of Exodus is all about God bringing his people out of Egypt after the Pharaoh, after the plagues, with great riches. 
And then this becomes the metaphor, the picture of salvation. And so then over a thousand years after that, God is going to allow his son, Jesus, to go down into Egypt. Why? It seems so random, such an unnecessary detail. What's the purpose? Matthew 2, 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. This is why. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. Because the people of Israel foreshadow the person of Jesus. And the great exodus out of Egypt is itself foreshadowed here by the story of Abraham. And God does this over and over and over again to to grab your attention and to basically shout at you, I do this. This is who I am. This is what I do. I bring my people out of Egypt. I save my people. And there is going to soon come an ultimate exodus, not from Egypt, but from sin, Satan, and death. And my son is going to do it for you. And so the exodus itself becomes a picture of the salvation of each and every one of us. God preserves his people. God preserves the faith of his people. You have been Abraham here time and time again. Your faith has faltered. It's perfectly imperfect. You so struggle to trust the promises of God and to live in light of their absolute certainty. God has said, which means that God will do. Why then do we so struggle so much to trust him? Let this word here challenge you. Repent of your unbelief. Don't go easy on yourself. Don't just consider your unbelief in general. I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, pray that prayer every day. But where specifically are you struggling to believe God right now? In what area in your life are you demonstrating unbelief right now? Let this story be both a challenge and a comfort for you. Figure out where your unbelief is and own it. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to a friend and repent of it. And then take great comfort in the fact that your life is not in your hands. Your hope is not in the strength of your faith, but your hope is in the strength of the Son of God. And he is infinitely strong. I loved the story of Samson as a kid because he was so big and strong. I think I was missing the point of the story. But I was always a little guy and I hated it. I still have it seared into my brain, someone commenting that some girl's arms were bigger than mine 20 years ago. Maybe I'm still trying to exercise some of those demons even today by going to the gym. And so as a little guy who was very weak, I loved stories of strength. And don't get me wrong, strength is good. I'm sure I have some bad reasons for wanting to get into shape, but I have some good ones too. I want to be strong for my wife and for my daughters. It is my job to provide for them and protect them. I want my little girls to feel safe with me. I want to preserve my health and my fitness. Emma is getting pretty big and heavy. I want to get as strong as I can so I can hold and carry her physically as long as I can as a picture that I will metaphorically carry her as long as I can. So strength is good. But as a weak guy, I loved the picture of big muscles rippling Samson as he strained under the weight of an entire building, as he literally brought the house down. I loved the picture of Atlas. Go see the statue outside of Rockefeller Center, the the titan holding up the world on his broad and powerful shoulders. How strong is Jesus 
the Son of God, the, the object of your faith. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Sometimes pagan mythology gets somewhat close to the truth. Jesus is Atlas. He is holding up the world. He sustains reality. He upholds the whole universe with his word, which is a wonderfully comforting truth as we remind ourselves that our hope is not in the strength of our faith, but in the strength of the object of our faith. And that object is strength. Jesus carries the weight of the world on his shoulders. But that's not all. It gets even better. This Jesus who holds the weight of the world, the almighty king and creator, is also the savior of that very world. There's this great scene in Greek mythology in the the 12 labors of Hercules. Hercules has to steal some golden apples from the goddess Hera's garden. Hera hates uh, Hercules, by the way. Well, he can't do it. He can't get in. He needs help. Atlas is able to help. The only problem is uh, Atlas is obviously somewhat occupied bearing the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. And so Hercules agrees to free Atlas of his burden. He agrees to take Atlas's burden for him, to take the weight of the world off of the shoulders of Atlas and bear his infinite burden in his place. Visualize that. Visualize the burden of the whole world being transferred from the shoulders of one to the shoulders of another. That's exactly what Jesus has done for you. That's how he is the savior of the very world he sustains. Not only does he bear the weight of the world on his shoulders, but for all of those who are his, all his children, he even takes over and takes on their sin and the infinite weight of the burden of that sin. He takes our sin and he bears our burden for us and he bears our burden for us by dying for us. He who became sin knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the object of your faith. He is the object of your faith. He doesn't just bear your existence. He bears your sin. He takes what was rightfully yours, makes it his own, and he dies in your place so that you can live. That's what your faith is about. That's why we don't glory in our faith. We glory in the one who gives us our faith, who preserves our faith, and who dies to do so. That's why our little faltering faith is enough because it connects us to him and he is more than enough. That's why the only right thing to do is to worship him, to rejoice, to to rest, to go back as Abraham does and remind yourself daily, hourly, without ceasing who this Jesus is and what he has done for you. Your faith may falter, but your God is the God who preserves and restores faith. So love him, trust him, obey him, and worship him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and kind. Thank you for helping me. I thank you that the power is not in me, but it's in you. I thank you that the power is not my words, but your word. Pray that my words would always be faithful to your words. I pray now that you would be doing your work through those words. Father, our faith is often so little and weak. Our faith so often falters. Forgive us, Lord. May we never identify ourselves 
with our, our sin or with our weakness or our faltering faith, but may we be aware of it and may we use it to drive us and move us towards you, to lean on you. Help us to lean not on our own understanding, but on you, Lord. We thank you that we have the promise and the reminder here that for those who are yours, you are always working for good. You are always blessing. You are always disciplining, changing, shaping, molding, making, like, making us like Jesus. So, Father, now do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Father, help us to be thankful us to delight in you because you are so merciful and kind to us through your son Jesus Christ and help us love him a little bit more as a result of this time. We ask and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.